There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried, and it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole, and he was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you all doing today? Good, good. All right. Well, hey, uh, we are, as that video showed, continuing our series entitled Man of Sorrow, series leading up to Easter, where we're looking at the, uh, the final days, the final hours of the life of Christ. And if you were here last week, Jeff unpacked the, uh, the Lord's Supper, that last Passover meal that Christ shared with his uh, disciples, talking about how he was go- his blood was going to inaugurate in the new covenant, his blood spilled for us and his body broken for us. And today what we're looking at is what happened after that meal. We're looking at the Garden of Gethsemane. And Sinclair Ferguson said that this passage is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in all of the Bible. It's in this garden that we, uh, we catch a glimpse a snapshot of the agony that Christ had to endure. And so my hope here this morning is that we would, we would uh, leave here uh, today just an awestruck wonder uh, of, uh, of the cup that Christ was willing to drink so that we could drink in the fullness of the cup of God's fellowship and forgiveness and love for us. So with that said, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive into this passage. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, uh, we thank you, God, that you are a God who is rich in mercy Lord, thank you for, uh, for sending your son, for piercing him uh, on behalf of our transgressions, Lord, so that he would drink in your cup of wrath, so that we could drink in your cup of fellowship, Lord. That's no small thing. So we pray uh, this morning, uh, God, that you would glorify your son, that you'd send your spirit. We thank you for your, your, your presence here in us and among us, and we pray, Spirit, that you would be at work, stirring our affections for your son, for you, Jesus. Come do what only you can do, and we pray that you would increase, and that I would decrease, and pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're going to jump right in here, and uh, I feel like there's some feedback. Is that true? A little feedback on my end? Okay, anything I can do about that up here? No? Okay. He's working on it. He's on it. He's on it. Beautiful. Good, good, good. All right, well, hey, uh, this uh, passage, I think, breaks up into four different sections. Matthew 26, 30 through 35 is the first section. We're going to look at Christ's prediction. Uh, so read along with me. Actually, don't read along with me. We're going to journey through this together. So Matthew 26, verse 30 says this, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So we're going to stop right there. Uh, this is, uh, that hymn is actually the closing of the Last Supper meal. There was kind of, a, as Jeff unpacked last week, there was a liturgy to the Passover meal, and they would close that with kind of a benediction, singing one of the Psalms together. And at the close of that, now that they're all full of food and wine, and it's super late at night, Jesus is like, hey, let's go for a, let's go for a hike. He takes the disciples to the Mount of Olives, which is just east of Jerusalem. And then Jesus makes this prediction. He says this. He says in verse 31, You will all fall away because of me this night. 
For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What Jesus is doing there is there's a prophecy in Zechariah 13, 7 that literally literally said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And what Jesus is saying there to his disciples is he's saying, this night, this prophecy is about me and this prophecy is actually about you. I'm going to be uh, uh, arrested I'm going to be unjustly tried, tortured, executed. And when I need you guys the most, all of you are going to to run for your lives and hide in fear. But there's a good news to this prophecy as well. And in this, Jesus says as well, he says to his disciples, he says, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So even in the midst of the disciples' unfaithfulness, we see Christ here having a promise to be faithful to them. Jesus Jesus promised to graciously restore his disciples back into fellowship with him after he rises again. Now, uh, if I was one of the disciples and I was was hearing this, this this would be hard news to hear, right? Like if Jesus told me this, uh, that I was going that night to literally leave him, to scatter, to, to abandon him. I'd say, that, Jesus, that's almost offensive. Like if you, if you guys know the Enneagram scale, there's like different personality traits or whatever. I'm, I'm a number six, I believe it's a loyalist. I know I'm a loyalist, I don't know if it's number six or not. But, but my, my go-to personality trait is loyalty to people. So if I was one of the disciples, I'd be like, Jesus, I'm loyal to you. You've seen my Enneagram scale? You've seen me leave my, my work, my family, my job? I left my reputation at the door to follow you. Now, you're going to say I'm going to abandon you? Come on, man. That's offensive. We're never going to leave you. We're never going to forsake you. And that's the reaction we see here from the disciples in verse 33 when Peter answered him. And Peter says to Jesus, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Don't you just love Peter? So Peter's doing here, he's throwing all the other disciples under the bus. And he's like, hey, Jesus, okay, okay, let's be real. Like All these guys will fall away. But you know me, I mean, I've walked on water with you. Uh, I'm, I'm the rock that you're going to build this church on. I mean, come on, man, I'm not going to fall away. But these guys will, but, but not me. We love Peter. And then Jesus said to him, to Peter, he goes, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. That this very night, Peter, uh, literally a little girl is going to come up and challenge you and say, Hey, weren't you, weren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of his disciples? And you're, and you're going you're gonna to curse her out and run for your life and hide. And Peter says, even if I must die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. All the disciples, so Jesus just prophesied. Uh, he, said, he said that tonight, Zechariah, that prophecy in Zechariah 13 is being fulfilled. And you guys are part of that. And the disciples are saying, it's not, sorry, Jesus, you're wrong. It's not going to happen. And, and I think it's noble, right, what they're doing. They're saying, hey, we're going down with this ship. If, if you're going down, we're going down with you. Even if I must die, I will die with you, Jesus. And as we, we know the story and even, even the fact that they couldn't stay awake and pray for Jesus when he asked them to, uh, what, what this passage screams to us, what we cannot miss in this passage is the false promises and the unfaithfulness of the disciples to their faithful Savior. That what this passage teaches us is that our hope, our confidence, is not in, in, in our promises that we vow to God, saying, I will never leave you, Christ. I will never forsake you. No, it's actually Jesus 
uh, wrestling with God in the garden and finally coming to grips with what he has to do and saying, arise, let us go. I'm marching towards Calvary on behalf of, of these disciples who are going to be uh, faithless to me. They're going to abandon me. That's the hope we have in I think often in the Christian life, we think that is our hope, that is our confidence. And, and many years ago, too many years to, to actually give you a number, but I was in junior high and I was at a camp. Uh, and the last night of the camp, it was a really heavy talk. Lights were dimmed and there's a bonfire going outside and there's a, a paper and an envelope. And in that, uh, at the end of that meeting, you're supposed to write down like, what you're going to give to the Lord upon leaving that camp. And to this day, I have no idea what I put in that envelope. But everyone marches with their envelopes of things that they were, you know, Lord, I'm never going to drink Mountain Dew again. You know, I swear I only play a couple hours of Halo a day and not 10 hours. Um, well, what does a sixth grader put in that envelope? Anyways, so you go and, you, and you, you, you throw this in the fire and say, Lord, look at what I'm doing for you. And that's, church, that's not our hope. That's not the Christian gospel. And I think often in, 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 as, we, as we read through this, this passage, it's easy for us to say or kind of put ourselves in the shoes of Jesus and say, hey, what's your garden of Gethsemane? What are you going through? How do you overcome those struggles? When in fact, in the story, we're the disciples who make often false promises, writing checks that we can't cash to God, and yet, and yet, and yet Christ is faithful to us. And he says, arise, let's go. Love that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And uh, the passage continues. We see Christ's prophecy. And then next we see Christ's despair. Look at me with verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to, the, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So what Jesus does here is he, he takes his, uh, his disciples uh, to the garden, and uh, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, which actually means uh, an, an oil press where these stone pillars would, would crush olives to extract oil. And the analogy there speaks for itself, of, of what Christ is even having to endure in that garden of Gethsemane. And uh, he, uh, he takes with him Peter, James, and John. And what, and what immediately sticks out as we're seeing this narrative unfold, this passage unfold, is uh, the unimaginable depth and intensity of Christ's anguish and sorrow in this moment. Christ is telling the disciples, and he takes with them Peter, James, and John, and he tells them that I am sorrowful to the point of death, meaning that this sorrow is overwhelming me to the point that I think I'm going to die. And that Greek verb there for troubled actually suggests this. It actually suggests to be overcome with horror, to be overcome with bewilderment, near panic. This is what Christ is going through in this moment, horror. Tim Keller says it's nauseating, nauseating anguish that Christ is enduring in this moment. And in the Gospel of Luke, it actually records that uh, this horror was so great that Christ was anticipating that he actually sweat blood. And that's the rare medical condition, uh, I believe it's called hematidrosis, uh, in which blood vessels actually burst under extreme anguish and the sweat mixes with blood. 
And so I think in the church, um, we, uh, we have this, I, can't, I think, kind of false thinking. We, we believe that, yes, Christ is fully God, fully man in one person, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, we think Christ's divinity always trumps his humanity. And, we, and, and that leads us to read encounters in the gospel, read encounters like this in the garden and think that uh, uh, Christ, Christ's uh, divinity trumped everything, that this was easy, that Jesus Christ is actually some kind of humanoid robot who, who, who always did what was right and didn't feel any emotions and can't sympathize with our weakness because he wasn't human when in fact the divine at the incarnation limited himself to the flesh. He was human. Christ felt, Christ felt hunger. He felt thirst. He felt the pull of temptation. He, he knew what a sleepless night was. He knew what it was to be sorrowful, to be tried, to be tested, to be tempted. And we see in the garden his humanity come to the forefront. That in Hebrews 4.15 it says, We do not have a, a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness, but he has been tempted in every way like you and I. So if we're, if we're here this week or this morning and we had a week where we're crying out to God, Lord, take this cup from me. I, uh, save my marriage. Save this work situation. We have the hope that Christ has his hand on our shoulder and he says, I know. I know. I know what you're going through. I've been there. He can sympathize with our weakness. Hebrews, 7, uh, Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 says this. In the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This passage just sticks out to me. Verse 7, talking about Christ's uh, moment in excuse me, in the garden, that with loud cries and tears in his eyes, Christ was, was pouring out his heart to the Father. Y'all ever pray like that? I know some of us in this room have, I know I have, tears in your eyes, crying out, throwing caution to the wind, throwing yourself on uh, the ground, that kind of prayer. This is what Christ is going through in this moment. And what's so interesting here is like throughout the Gospels, we have this picture of Christ who's in control, right? Christ who is calm, cool, and collected. Like we're in Matthew, and throughout Matthew's Gospel and the other Gospels, you see Christ uh, sleeping in the middle of a storm on a boat. And he wakes up and he tells the storm to, to, to cut it out, to, to stop being a storm, and the waves and the winds cease. And then and, and Christ goes and he encounters the evil, he, he encounters the demonic, and the demonic shudders. It flees from his presence. He's completely unfazed. He looks at disease and says, stop being diseased. He looks at the paralytic, and, uh, the, the paralytic person and says, hey, rise, get up and walk. And yet now in this moment in Gethsemane, we see the, the opposite. But Christ is overcome with, with horror, a nauseating anguish. And it's not just the, the vocabulary that cues us in on his distress. Here's what's crazy about this is that uh, Christ asks his closest friends to be with him in his deepest moment of need. Peter, James, John, his inner circle. He left his disciples kind of far away. He went a stone's throw away, and he actually invited Peter, James, and John, went a little bit further. And uh, what that reveals to us is, is that Jesus, he wanted the simple human comfort of not being alone. But this is kind of the anguish he's going through. And what, and what should stick out to us is the paradox of the Son of God, the maker of heaven 
heavens and the earth, asking mere mortals to watch and pray for him. This is what he's enduring. And so the question that naturally should be asked is, okay, well, we know Christ is facing death, and maybe that's why he's experiencing so much anguish, but haven't other people faced martyrdom and death a whole lot more bravely? Even in the history of the church? Like uh, one example of this is um, Nicholas Ridley and, uh, Ridley and Hugh Latimer were burned at the stake. Imagine that, burned at the stake for their faith in Oxford, England in 1555. And uh, as they're tied up side by side and the, the torch is being lit at their feet, Hugh Latimer looks over to his, his, his buddy Nicholas and he says, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And yet, in this passage in the garden, we see a a, a nauseating horror overtake Christ, something that has shaken him to his core. Why is that? It's because he's facing something far worse than death. He's facing something far worse than crucifixion. This is what Tim Keller says. Something happened in the garden. Jesus saw, he felt, he sensed something, and it shocked the unshockable Son of God. What was it? He was facing something beyond physical torment, even beyond physical death. Something so much worse that these were like flea bites by comparison. He was smothered by a mere whiff of what he would, what he would go through on the cross. In Gethsemane, he gets a a glimpse, he gets a picture of actually what was taking place on the cross, what was going to happen, and his prayer cues us in as to what that was. The third thing we see here is Christ's prayer in Matthew 26, 39 through 44. And going a little further, Christ fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said, Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, Jesus went away and he prayed and said, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and he found the disciples sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Christ literally, what this passage says, is he throws himself on the ground, and with, with tears flowing from his, his face, he's crying out to his Abba, his father, saying, Papa, you, you know what's coming. There has to be another way. And we just went through a series on the Lord's Prayer uh, these past couple months, And something that we really honed in on was this idea that Jesus teaches us that if God is our Father and and if Christ is our our model for prayer, then this Garden of Gethsemane prayer is a good prayer to follow, that we can come to God the Father boldly. We can come to him messy, throwing ourselves at his feet with tears in our eyes, crying out with a bold request. Christ is literally saying, Lord, the cup that you sent me to drink, would you take it from me? The very thing I've been sent to do, Lord, would you find another way? Three times we see a a wrestling match take place here. 
Three times Christ goes to God and he presents his request and he adds that, 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 uh, that uh, just amazing line at the end saying, your will, not my own, be done. This is my will. And I'm not going to force you in prayer to bend to my will. Prayer is a wrestling match of God having us bend to his will. And so three times he asked that the Father would take this cup from him. We need to ask ourselves, well, well, what is he asking? What was the cup that he was to drink? And throughout the Old Testament, the cup here that Christ is mentioning is a metaphor for the wrath of God on human evil. Divine judgment that is to be poured out upon our wickedness. Isaiah 51, 17 says this, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. This is what was causing Christ to shudder. It wasn't the nails. It wasn't the whip, the crown of thorns, the shame, the humiliation. It was this cup. He would drink in the cup of forsakenness from the Father, listen, so that we could drink in the cup of fellowship with the Father. And it's this reality that causes Jesus for a moment to hesitate, to shudder, to cry out in anguish. This is what Donald McLeod says. Donald McLeod wrote a really good book called Christ Crucified. Holy moly, it's a phenomenal book. You should read it if you want to understand the atonement and what Christ had to endure uh, uh, on the cross. It is, it is wonderfully written. This is what Donald McLeod says. In Gethsemane, Jesus knew that he was face to face with the unconditionally holy that absolutely overwhelming might that condones nothing. It cannot look on impurity, and it cannot be diverted from its purpose. What would it do to him? There will be pain indeed, and Jesus, he shrinks from that. There will be an awful loneliness, and he shrinks from that. There will be the virulent, hellish, demonic, and he shrinks from that. And there will be dying and death and its taste, and he shrinks from that. But there will be more, and it doesn't help that he doesn't yet know what. The curse what will it mean? The full ransom price. What will it mean? Forsaken by God. What does it mean? The thunder and lightning of unmitigated divine judgment, condemning sin in his tiny, frail body. What will that mean? The thunder and lightning of unmitigated divine judgment, condemning sin in his tiny, frail body. What will that mean? So what Jesus here is requesting in this prayer, when he's saying, take this cup from me, is he's saying, God, there has to be another way. God, there has to be another way for your wrath to be absorbed and for these people to come to know you. That there has to be another way to reconcile this sinful humanity back to a holy God. Jesus, our Father, there has to be another way. And, and all things, he says in Mark's gospel, we see Jesus praying uh, that all things are possible for you, Lord. Can there be another way. Cannot, cannot many roads lead to you, God? Why this one cup? Can there not be many cups, many roads that lead to you? And uh, the bottom line is this. Listen, church, if there was another way, we need to understand this. Because if we lose this, we, we, we minimize the work that Christ did for us. If we lose this, we lose the gospel. 
that if the all-wise God of the universe, holy and just, and by his holiness, it necessitates that sin has to be punished. If there was another way for this God to reconcile us back to himself, another way that didn't include the crushing, the, the, the crushing of his son who he loved, he would have found it. He would have found it. But there was no other way. There is no other way for us to come to the Father. There is no other way. Jesus had to drink that cup for us. Otherwise, we would have to drink that cup. Acts 4.12. And there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, if... if if we preach this, this false gospel of, of uh, uh, and, and I get it, I, I understand why it's attractive to, to, to want to believe that, but it completely nullifies everything Christ endured at Gethsemane and, and at Calvary. It was meaningless. If there, were, if there was another way, God would have found it. If there was another way, his son would not have to have been crushed. He would not have to drink every last drop of the cup of God's wrath on that cross. John 14, 6, Jesus in the upper room discourse, the last meal, his disciples said this, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one way to God. There's one way to be spared his wrath and yet experience his, his full grace and his love and his mercy, and that's through the person and work of Christ, putting your trust in him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And I think for a lot of us here, we wrestle with the exclusivity we say that's so closed-minded. How could there be one way to God? And we completely miss the, the, the grace and the love and the sacrifice of the gospel. It's the best news in the world. There's a freight train coming for us. And Christ pushes us out of the way and, 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 and stands full, 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 fully in the way of that freight train. Takes it. He takes the hit. And then we have the audacity to say, is that really how he had to save us? Could he have not done that another? Couldn't he have texted me? Couldn't he just give me a heads up? He gave his life. He stepped in the way. And, it, and that, was, that was our train. That was our cup that we were to drink. Church, do we know what we've been saved from? Do we know what Christ had to endure on our behalf? I think once we get that, we'll understand the costs. And once we understand the costs, that, that, that changes everything. It changes everything. It's not exclusive. It's not that there's just one way. It's that God in his grace has made a way. It's he has made a way. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. And in his grace and out of his love for you, he, he's given you a way to be spared what you deserve so you can get what you don't deserve. And it's his grace and his mercy and his love. That is the good news of the gospel. If we lose that, we lose everything. He's made a way with his blood, his tears, his sacrifice. That was our cup to drink. And a common refrain, and, and this, this is too something that I've, I've wrestled with, and so if you're here today and you struggle with this, I, I get it as well, uh, where, you, where you might be hearing and you might be saying to yourself, well, I don't like this, this talk of God being a wrathful God. 
I don't like this talk of, of God being a, a, a God of justice and, 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 and wrath. But here's the deal. We need to understand this. If God is a God of love, he has to be a God of wrath. He has to be a God of anger. Because, because the more you love someone, and the more you, 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 you want what's best for them, the, the anger wells up in you when you see harm coming their way, right? For instance, let me, let me illustrate this. Anyone here seen the movie Taken with Liam Neeson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Taken one, taken two, taken three, taken four. Um, and if you don't know this story, Liam Neeson is this ex-CIA operative. And in the first movie, his daughter gets kidnapped by some, of course, Russian gangsters. And, uh, and then taken two, like his grandma gets taken. Taken three, his dog gets taken. And somebody needs to ask the question of, well, if he's this really you know, awesome ex-CIA operative, he needs to figure out why everyone's getting taken. Okay, anyways. Um, and what he does in this movie is, and listen, uh, a worldwide, this trilogy, I had to look this up because I was just curious, uh, worldwide almost made close to $1 billion. $1 billion. So we'll pay, humanity will pay close to $1 billion to see Liam Neeson enact swift justice against people that would harm his daughter. And we think he's done nothing wrong as long as they're Russian gangsters, Right? <laughs> We paid billions of dollars to see him do that. Or, or fill in the blank for whatever movie. Maybe it's Bruce Willis or a Denzel Washington movie or, or, uh, or uh, who's that guy from uh, or, uh, Keanu Reeves movie, right? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? So billions. Listen, this is what I'm getting at. Is, is listen, humanity, we love and we understand that the love that someone has coincides the depths of their love to the depths of their anger that they have as well. Right? And we'll pay billions of dollars to see justice enacted for wrong that was committed against someone who is innocent. And uh, yet, yet, when God the Father, who has the only right to, be, to enact justice, we all, we all go up in arms. We say, how could God do that? How could God be a just God? How could he be, be angry against human evil and wickedness? How could he not be angry? How could he not be? We need forgiveness. His, his love, his holiness necessitates that sin and evil be punished. His love demands his grace. And this is what Tim Keller says. Those who care about justice get angry when they see justice being trampled upon. And we should expect a perfectly just God to do the same. But we don't ponder how much his anger is also a function of his love and goodness. The Bible tells us that God loves everything he has made. That's one of the reasons he is angry at what's going on in his creation. He is angry at anything or anyone that is destroying the people in the world that he loves. His capacity for love is so much greater than ours, and the cumulative extent of evil in the world is so vast that the word wrath doesn't really do justice to how, good, to how God rightly feels when he looks at the world. So it makes no sense to say, I don't want a wrathful God. I want a loving God. If God is loving and he is good, he must be angry at evil, angry enough to do something about it. And it's at the cross where we see this beautiful marriage of God's love and God's justice. 
His, he is a God of love, and because he's a God of love, he's a God of justice. And how do you know God loves you, and how do you know he's a just God? Look at the cross. Look at the price that he was willing to pay, the highest price that could ever be paid for your ransom, for you. Christ did this for us, for us, and we lose that, and we all get wrapped up about God being a God of, of wrath. But do you understand that, that he has absorbed that, and he's given us a way out so that we can know him? He's provided us a way in his grace. His love and his justice meet on the cross. And if you're here today and you're unsure about your standing before God, would you accept the free gift of salvation that is offered to you with this Jesus? He's calling your name today. He's calling your name today. And he's saying, I'm drinking the cup of wrath so that you can come and feast with me and drink in the fullness of of the cup of God's love and his mercy and his grace for all of eternity. It's not that there's, that, that there's only one way. It's that God has made a way for you. And the cross and his justice screams of his love for you. That yes, he's a God of wrath, but he's, he's offered you a way to be spared the justice that you and I deserve for our sins. And so back to our narrative. I'm running out of time here. For three times, Christ wrestled with God in the garden, throwing himself on the earth. And each time he goes back to his disciples, who, who had just promised to never leave him or forsake him, to go down with the ship, and they can't even keep their eyes open. They're sleeping. When, they, when Christ needed them most, they couldn't even stay awake. And, and in this moment here, in this moment where Christ is praying and praying and praying, take this cup from me, eternity is hanging in the balance. Your salvation of mine is hanging in the balance. And we're left with this question, how is Christ going to respond? What was the answer he got from the Father? And Donald McLeod says it this way. He says, for a moment, the whole salvation of the world, the whole, the whole of God's determinate counsel hangs in the balance, suspended on the free, unconstrained decision of this man. What was Christ going to do? And the last thing we see in this passage is Christ's obedient submission to the Father, verse 45 through 46. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So in Gethsemane, Jesus gets a taste, a preview of what's coming. And how did he respond to that horror that awaited him? He, he submitted himself to the Father's will. He got up from a tear and blood-soaked earth, walked up to his disciples and said, Rise, let us be going, and walked straight into the arms of his betrayer. In spite of the agony, the horror of the unknown, Christ was obedient. He was faithful. He was steadfast in his love towards us even in spite of uh, the disciples' uh, lack of that to him. And so uh, I'm going to wrap up with this quote by Donald McLeod. Gethsemane is more than the dread of suffering. It is itself suffering. Part of the road he had to walk. Part of the price he had to pay. Part, indeed, of the cup itself. His obedience included having to cope with the fear of death as well as with death itself. And here is nowhere else Jesus is tested. He's tested in his love, in his faith, and in his courage. And here Satan shows him. Not all the kingdoms of the world is in a previous temptation, but the full cost of his love. And here he presses home the questions. 
Is it worth it? Are they worth it? And the reason you and I are here today, for those of us who have experienced the cup of God's grace and his blessing and his mercy, is because Jesus got up from that ground after wrestling with his father and looked at his disciples and said, Arise, let us be going. And as much as Jesus caught a glimpse of the flaming furnace of God's just wrath against human wickedness, Perhaps maybe in that, uh, that garden, he also caught a glimpse of the countless lives that would forever be changed because of the abundant grace that would flow from his sacrificial death and the resurrection. Maybe Christ caught a glimpse of the sinner being set free, the, the, the addicts being set free, the chains being broken, the, the slaves to sin being, uh, being adopted into the fold of God, becoming sons and daughters of God, marriages being restored, uh, the, the sorrowful uh, shouting with, with cries of joy at the grace that they've been shown by their father. And maybe Christ caught a glimpse of that, that eschatological banquet, that marriage supper of the lamb in Revelation 19. Maybe caught a glimpse of that, where because he was going to drink every last drop of God's wrath, we were forever going to be given the beautiful hope and the promise that one day there's going to come a day we're going to sit at God's table and drink in the fullness of his love and his grace and his fellowship forever. So just as much as Christ caught a glimpse of the agony that awaited him, maybe he caught a glimpse of you here this morning. And out of love for you, and out of love for me, and out of love for humanity, He got up from the ground and said, Arise, let us go, and marched straight to the cross to, uh, to drink in the full cup of God's wrath. And the question that remains is, uh, is where in the world are you going to find a love like this? Tell me, tell me, who has gone? Who has gone to such lengths? Such lengths for you? Who? Do you know what? You know what Christ was willing to endure for you? He stepped in front of that train for us. He took the cup that we were supposed to drink. Why? Because he loves you. And when, and when he was pressed with, is it worth it? He was pressed with the question, are they worth it? Are you worth it? Christ said, yes. He said, yes. And I'll conclude with this quote by Jonathan Edwards. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. But there are two things that render Christ's love wonderful. One, that he should be willing to endure sufferings that were so great. And secondly, that he should be willing to endure them to make atonement for our wickedness that was so great. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did this for us. May we leave here just in awe and wonder of our Savior and the price that he was willing to pay to secure our ransom. Uh, with that said, let's pray.
Heavenly Father, it just blows us away um, to think on the, the height, the breadth, the length, the depth of your love for us, for, for a people who uh, often want nothing to do with you, for, for a people who often uh, uh, are, are evil and wicked in our thoughts and our actions. And yet in your love, you were the one who took the first step. You were the one who took on flesh. You were the one who, who reconciled us back to you. You were the one who made this broken relationship right. So all praise, all glory, all honor belongs to you, Jesus, this morning. We say thank you. We say thank you that unlike us, who wrestle with God, and when we don't get the answer we want, we just go and do what we want. You wrestle with God. You said three times, not my will, but your will. Not why my will, but your will. Not my will, but your will be done. And you submitted in faithful obedience to the Father. You said your will be done, not mine. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for doing that. It's just a, it's a beautiful testament of the price you're willing to pay, the cup you're willing to drink, to, to give us undeserved grace, undeserved mercy, undeserved forgiveness forever, life everlasting. What, what better news is there that, we could, that we, could, we could give to each other, that we could receive from you? You are the way. You've made the way. And so all praise, all glory, all honor be to you. Thank you, Christ. Thank you. We say thank you, church. May we be found grateful today for who Christ is and what he was willing to do to rescue us. You're the God who saves. You're the God who rescues. Thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.